Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. Again, it's a book of contrasts. And what has been uh, primarily addressed up to this point is that Jesus is so much better than the angels uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, He is the Messiah, the first three verses of chapter one. Uh, But then uh, all kinds of Old Testament passages uh, showing that he is the Lord himself. He is very God himself. And that's the bulk actually down through verse eight of chapter two. Uh, The first four, I think it is, uh, verses of chapter 2 is just a warning passage. There are a number of warning passages. And as we get to verse 6 here, it's not a warning passage in and of itself, but it's certainly the the understanding of the verse reflects on the, the the, the truth that there are warning passages in Hebrews. Two groups of people possessing believers, Uh, they're true believers, they possess the Lord, and professing believers, those who truly are not saved, but they give lip service to the Lord. That group is in danger of sliding back, falling away, going back to the old system of Mosaism, temple was standing, the priesthood was still around and such, and the warning is to them not to do that. And so five different times in Hebrews, we will have that. The first one in in the beginning of chapter 2, and then it picks up with angels, and and then in verse 9, but we see Jesus, um, the great primer for messianic prophecy. Well, when we come to um, the third chapter of Hebrews, uh, what we have here is a contrast between Jesus, the Son, who's now named. You know, up until verse 9 of chapter 2, he was never named. Uh, but in chapter 2, verse 9, but we see Jesus, so we know the Son is Jesus. So here we have um, how Jesus is so much superior than Moses, and that's what it's dealing with. Uh, Moses himself is probably, I think unquestionably, uh, the most revered individual in in Jewish history. Now, that's Jewish people who don't know the Savior, obviously, who don't know the Messiah, because the most revered individual who's uh, entered into the world through a Jewish womb is not Moses. Moses was a great individual, highly revered, even by Bible believers, revered in the sense of what God did through him, Uh, but highly revered to the Jewish people because they don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe in the Messiah. Uh, so they highly, highly uh, uh, revere him, speak highly of him. There's a saying in the Jewish world, from Moses to Moses, there was none like Moses. Now, the first Moses is the, uh, the one found in the, in the Torah, in the five books of, of Moses, the Pentateuch, the law uh, books that we talk about. The second Moses uh, is Maimonides. Maimonides was a rabbi in the 13th century. In the, he, he was in the Egyptian uh, court, um, ministered to kings. He was a brilliant, brilliant man. He was a physician. He was a writer. Um, he, he was just uh, very, very brilliant. 
And so there's this saying, from Moses to Moses, there was none like or no greater than Moses. That's how much they revered uh, Moses um, Rabbeinu, Moses our rabbi, Moses uh, of the Torah that is speaking about. Um, and, and if you're looking for a, you know, Christian world has defined doctrinal beliefs. And any Christian organization, whether it's Jewish Awareness Ministries, whether it's the church you go to, whether it's any type of Christian group, organization, should have a clear doctrinal statement on what they believe. And if you ever find a Christian ministry that doesn't and says, well, our, our doctrinal statement is the Bible, my suggestion, do 180. <laughs> so leave, turn around and run. Uh, you know, Jehovah Witnesses say that their doctrinal statement is that where's the Bible? The Catholics would, and you know, every false teacher out there, uh, and there's a lot of them, would say the same thing. So every group should have a defined Christian group, certainly should have a defined doctrinal statement. We have one here. We have it in written form in our book, The, the Distinctives of Jewish Ministry. We have it just in, in a little pamphlet. It's on our website. It's not hard to find our doctrinal statement. If you don't know where to find it, ask Dan or Cheryl or me. Uh, and we'll get you one if you're really interested in, in having that. It's not true in the Jewish world. They don't have doctrinal statements, per se. The closest thing you will find to a doctrinal statement was put together by Maimonides, Moses Maimonides, which is the 13 articles of Jewish faith. That's how revered he is. Um, and it's not that everybody in the religious Jewish world, re Reformed Jews, would not believe it because um, there's a statement there about the coming of the Messiah that they believe in the coming of the Mashiach. And though he tarry, we, we believe he will come. Well, you're going to find Reformed Jews don't believe that. So anyway, uh, Moses himself, the lawgiver, was, was, an, was a very, very, and is a very revered individual in the Jewish world. Just six things of, of, of interest, I, I think, of, of how important he was. He led the children of Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness wanderings. Now, that alone, you know, if you could take, oh, probably upwards of a million or so people, as hard-headed as they come, complaining about where's our leeks and where's our garlic, you know, where's all this good stuff in Egypt that we used to have and all we're getting here is manna, and, you know, and lead those, that bunch of people through the wilderness for 40 years, you know, that alone to me is, uh, it's amazing. So he also received the Ten Commandments and the law through a personal encounter with God on Mount Sinai. Now, how many of us have had that opportunity? Um, I know a lot in the Christian world. There's a new book, relatively new. I started the, the read. It's a very good book, um, although I'm only about, the book itself is only 118 pages long, and there's a number of different appendixes. And so I think I'm on page 35. I'm about a third of the way through the, the book itself. But it's called, um, I'm trying to remember now, The Dangers of Deception. And it's, it's, it's highlighting the deception that is going on in the world today in the, in the mystical, what's the word he used? Mystical, um, mystical, I think, magical movement of Christianity. And one of the authors of the book, interestingly enough, is the nephew of one of these mystical miracle workers. And one of these mystical miracle workers is Benny Hinn. And so his nephew, I think it's um, Costi Hinn. Yeah, so you're familiar with the book. Yeah. He's one of the two authors of this book. So he, he's, he was in the lion's den, as it were. He was part of this before he ultimately just, and I'm, I'm not familiar with his entire testimony, but eventually he just started to see, he got saved within being part of this ministry, uh, and he saw the corruption, and, and then he got saved, and, and he went back to his uncle, he went back to his family, he went, you know, a lot of his family members are in this movement, and they wouldn't give him the time of day. And so anyway, he and his uh, 
the co-pastor, senior pastor, I'm not sure how all of this works out, two pastors, one church in Southern California, they wrote this book. Um, now, why did I get onto that? But anyway, um, oh, I know why. You know, Moses actually talked to God. And uh, the, part, the part of the book, I just finished it, actually. He, he, they talk about all the generals of this, of the, of this world. I mean, and, and that's how they refer to them. In other words, we rode into town on, uh, on the foundation of what these people have laid. Things, thing, people like William Branham and Catherine Coleman and um, Kenneth Hagen and Oral Roberts and uh, um, I don't remember all of them. And he gives little, you know, you wouldn't believe how many of these people met Jesus. You know, I'm not talking in a spiritual salvation type of way. I mean, you know, Oral Roberts, 900 foot Jesus shows up and talks to him. Uh, you know, and uh, Remember that years ago? Some of you may, some of you may not. You know, he wanted to build a city of faith a hospital. And so the 900-foot Jesus showed up and told him to build it, and millions of dollars poured in, and within 10 years it was bankrupt. And, and I always wondered, even back then, you know, if you're a faith healer, what do you need to build a hospital? <laughs> you know... So, but anyway, um, but almost every one of these people had visitations from God. Um, anyway, if you're interested in the book, it's, anyway. Uh, Moses actually did. He, he, you know, in, in, in 2410 of Exodus, and the Lord said unto Moses, come up to me unto the mountain, be there, and I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments, which I've written that thou mayest teach them. He actually had a visit with God on the top of Mount Sinai. God gave him the Ten Commandments. God gave him the whole law, Ten Commandments being part of the law. Don't separate the Ten Commandments from the rest of the law. It's part of the law. Uh, the Ten Commandments, yes, were written on stone, but that doesn't mean there weren't other parts of the law. There certainly were. Uh, we find those commandments, rest of Exodus, Leviticus, some in Numbers, and so on. Uh, Moses gave that. Moses died an unnatural death. Moses, this is Deuteronomy 34, 7, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural force abated. In other words, he was in the prime of life. He was healthy as an ox, and yet he died, which makes it unnatural. Because normally when one dies, if it's not you know, you have a tree fell on you or a safe coming down, you know, you know, from, from you, know, you know, as you're walking along the sidewalk or being shot or something. You know, normally you got cancer, you have a heart attack, you know, whatever the cause of death uh, might have been that, that brought He was extremely healthy, and yet he died. So an unusual, uh, unnatural death. He was buried in an unknown place by God. And he, and if you looked at the context of the passage of Deuteronomy 34, the, the he is God. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab over against Beth Peor. But no man knows of his sepulcher unto this day. Now, it, it's fascinating, perhaps is that the word to use, of all of the uh, commentaries and what they say about this. Um, you know, some of the Orthodox commentaries, Orthodox, Jewish Orthodox commentaries, well, Moab is an unclean, pagan, uh, Gentile nation. And so they buried Mo Moses there to, to purify the land. Um, you know, um, Josephus says, well, what actually happened is Moses was like Enoch, and um, uh, Elijah, he was just taken up into heaven. Well, I'm not sure that took place because God buried him. <laughs> you know, you know, it's very clear what it says. Um, <clears throat> but the interesting thing is God actually buried Moses. Not his brethren, not somebody. God buried him and nobody knows where his tomb is this very day. We know it's on Mount 
Nebo. Uh, maybe we need to put a tour together to Mount Nebo one year, and we'll provide the shovels in Israel, and we'll look for Moses' tomb. Would you like to do that? Bob's all in. I can see that right now. <laughs> so, <coughs> Mount, Mount Nebo is in Jordan, by the way. Um, anyway, uh, nobody knows where it is. They know the area, but they don't know where the sepulcher is, where the tomb is. Uh, Moses had his body disputed over by Satan and Michael the archangel. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses and just not bringing against him a railing accusation. So, so Michael and, and, the arch and, and, um, uh, um, and the devil got disputed, whatever the dispute means, is, you know, it's argument, uh, discussion, whatever, about Moses' body. Now, ultimately, we know what happened. You know, God took the body and said, I'm going to solve this problem. I, I'm reading between the lines here, if I'm allowed to do uh, This is sanctified speculation, by the way. Uh, you know, God took the body and said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to solve this dispute about the body of Moses. He buried him. And, and that's a pretty safe assumption. Why? Because we know from Jude Moses, that, that the devil and uh, Michael disputed about the body. We know from Deuteronomy that who buried the body? God. And again, read, so, so very likely God intervened and just took the body and buried it somewhere in, in, on Mount Nebo is where. But, but when was the last time that you ever heard of Satan and Michael arguing over the body of someone? People, there's no way of knowing. A lot of people speculate that, you know, how people revere um, people. You know, the Catholic Church makes saints out of all kinds of people, uh, and then what do what the um, devout Catholics do? They worship these saints, uh, you know, and they got a saint for everything. And uh, so some people speculate that, well, Satan wanted to make him as an idol, as it were, that people would turn their attention away from God and turn their attention towards Moses. And they'll worship the shrine of Moses. Um, we we don't when we go to Bethlehem. It's been many many years. Um, most of you, I know Cheryl's been there. May, I, we don't go into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre anymore. Uh, not the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. We don't go into the. Uh, we don't go there anymore either, for that matter. But anyway, we don't go into the Bethlehem Church anymore. What um, church? of the nativity. Uh, if we do go to Bethlehem, we go to the shepherd's field. Uh, we skip the church. It's an abomination. But I've been in there, and, and it's, you see these old, obviously Catholic, you know, maybe Orthodox ladies, I don't know, but you, probably Catholic ladies and others literally on their, on their hands and their knees crawling up, at, up to these icon statues with Mary, who's holding the little baby. It, it is so sickening. It's so sad, and 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 they've 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 purchased a um, a candle. That's their way of giving an offering to not to Jesus to Mary. You know, and so think what would happen if Moses Moses's body. Now, we don't know if that's the answer. All we know is they disputed Satan and Michael over the body. Um, but knowing that Satan wants to draw worship from Jesus to whomever, primarily to him, but to whomever, you know, that, that's a possible explanation anyway uh, of what happened. So, but just that there was this dispute over it. Moses was one of the two men chosen to appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So Jesus was there, Moses was there, and Elijah. I mean, that alone makes you very, very uh, important. And so you look at all the different things about Moses. Moses was, was probably 
the, certainly in the, in the earlier scripture, was the, certainly the most stellar personality in the entire Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, um, outside of Jesus, who is probably the most stellar personality that we see? Paul. Paul. Um, and, and what God did through him. You know, he wrote more books of the New Testament than anybody. He was taken up into the third heaven and uh, visited with God there. How many people have done that? Well, a lot of people today claim they've done that, writing books, but they haven't done it. They're just, you know. Um, but at Moses, and when the writing of Hebrews, you know, there's no, some of the books of the New Testament have been written. This is prior to 70 A.D., so Paul had written some of the books, but not all of them had been penned at this point. So the most stellar personality, and certainly in the Jewish world, was Moses. And so what the writer is doing is trying to show to the, these Jewish people that the, Jesus, the Son, is so much greater, so superior to Moses. And that, that's where he starts. So verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and the high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Now, ultimately, I, I, we're going to look at four basic fundamental truths that come out of this verse that we need to internalize. But the focus here is on Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus. And the beginning of this verse is predicated on all that's been taught up to this point. Okay, what's been taught up to this point? I've kind of, um, you know, summarized it. The Son, Jesus, is the Messiah. That's verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1. He's better than the prophets, as in these latter days, you know, in, in, in times past, is spoken unto us by the prophets, but now in these latter days is spoken unto us through the Son. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. That's verses 4 through 14 of chapter 1 and 5 through 8 of chapter 2. Uh, Jesus offers so great a salvation. And we, we consider that uh, when we were back in the earlier part of chapter 2. So great a salvation that Jesus offers. He died for all. He died for every single individual. Uh, chapter 2, 9 through 10, 14 and 15. Uh, Jesus will bring us to heaven one day. So it's not only that he died for us and provided salvation, but he secures us and keeps us and will deliver us one day into heaven itself. So he will bring us to heaven one day. And he is a merciful and faithful high priest, the end of chapter 2. And, and we didn't look a lot of what that means about the high priest because as we move on in Hebrews, especially at the end of chapter 4 and into 5 through 7, chapter 5 through chapter 7, we're going to learn a lot about Jesus' ministry as the high priest. And that he's a high priest not after the order of the Levites, because the Levites are a tribe, Dan, we got to remember to change that. I know, okay. There's, so, pardon? I didn't understand what you said. I can't hear him. My hearing's going bob. I can't understand what you said. Anyway, the Levites were the priestly tribe. But Jesus was from the tribe of, where is it? Uh, Next to Levi, he's from Judah. Well, to be a priest, you had to be from the tribe of Levi. So what will be developed in the end of chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7, uh, primarily 5 and 7, but the end of uh, 6 a little bit, but not so much, is that he's not a priest after the order of Aaron after the Levites, but he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, this Oh, Melchizedek? I, I couldn't understand him. Okay. Uh, of Melchizedek. <laughs> no, you were, you were, you had too much chewing tobacco in your mouth, Bob. Uh, you could, you know, so. <laughs> anyway, whatever. 
we'll, we'll look at Melchizedek in a few weeks, months, whenever we get there. Very interesting person. Uh, and there's always this debate, was, uh, was Melchizedek, and we'll, we'll, we'll try to answer this question when we get there. Well, well was Melchizedek a, a theophany? Was it a, pre, a pre-incarnation of Christ? Was, it a, was he actually Jesus who had taken on flesh and was Melchizedek the high priest? Or was he just a man and a priest and was a picture of Jesus? So those are the two um, uh, sides that people come down on. And uh, we will look at that and answer that. Obviously, I have an opinion. Uh, and since everything I believe is 100% correct, <laughs> until I find out that something I don't believe is correct, so I'm not 100% correct, then I change my belief on that. Voila, I'm 100% correct again. So, Listen, am I going to tell you I believe a lie and teach it to you? No, no preacher's going to do, no, nobody, no Christian, no, let alone a teacher of the Word of God is going to tell you that I don't believe this, but I'm going to teach it to you anyway. They teach it to you because they believe it's true. Now, they may be wrong, but it's not because they're trying to deceive you. So, now, there are those out there, that's, but that's a whole other, that's the deceptive crowd, that's the Benny Hinn's and the, you know, Kenneth Copeland's and all of those people. So, anyway. Um, by the way, that, that saying didn't originate with me. I, I, I adopted it from someone, and I first heard it put that way by John MacArthur. I said, boy, does it, he's 100% right until he's wrong, and then he's right again, you know. So I picked up from when he said that. Many, many, we used, Cheryl and I used to be, attend and be members at Grace Community Church in Sun Valley back when we were young and, uh, you know, and living in California, exactly. We were even younger than, you know, uh, not, yo- not as young as, as Dan, but Alan and April. But anyway, we're younger than them at that time. So Dan is just, I'm getting way off. Okay. <laughs> so the beginning of this verse is predicated in all that has been t- uh, taught up to this point. So... Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. So what has been stated here is all predicated on Jesus, who he is, Christ Jesus. Um, And by the way, this is the first time that we find Christ and Jesus tied together in Hebrews. I think I mentioned that later. Christ, you're fully aware you should be, is just another term for Messiah. Christ, the Hebrew word is Mashiach, Anointed one, they're all, you know, it's kind of like uh, half a dozen and six. You're saying the exact same thing with different terms. That's Christ, Messiah, Mashiach, anointed one, same thing. This is the first time where it's wedded together in Hebrews where Jesus is the Messiah, in, in other words. In other, but it's been certainly taught up to this point. So, what are the four truths? The first one is our position. And, and, and all of these I would submit to you that, and, and we're told, consider. Uh, and, and the focus of consider is that we are to focus on Jesus. And so all of these truths are something that we all should internalize uh, in our life, in our Christian life. So number one, our position. We're, we're for holy brethren. Now, there's only one other time that this phrase is used in the later scripture in the New Testament. That's in 1 Thessalonians 5.27, where it says, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. No other time is this term, holy brethren, used um, uh, of believers. Now, holy, you know, in, in Peter, first Peter, it says, be ye holy as... I am holy, so that's used. Uh, brethren, oftentimes used, but the only two tones is put together is here and, and in 1 Thessalonians <coughs> chapter 5. Now, what is in view here is not our practice because he is speaking to a group of people 
uh, that are at different stages of their maturity. Some of them uh, obviously aren't even saved because they're in danger of slipping away. So the, the, it's not practical living here, holy brethren, that it's being talked of. This is the, this is the position that they have. Uh, Ephesians says we're seated in the heavenlies. Ephesians chapter 1. Once, you know, children of God, we're seated in the heavenlies. You know, this is a nice building. I thank God for it. But believe me, this is not the heavenlies. Uh, this is, you know, we're not seated in heaven right now. We're seated in Anger. Um, in the Jewish Awareness Ministries building. And so Ephesians 1 is talking about our position. And it's literally like we are seated in heaven with the Lord himself. Well, we're for holy brethren. Um, so um, holy, and we, we've considered this in the earlier scripture, the Old Testament, but this uh, hagios here in the Greek means the same thing. It's no different than the, um, than the Old Testament word for, for holy. It, 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 and I just copy this from um, uh, a dictionary, a Greek dictionary, a biblically Greek dictionary. It's physically pure, morally blameless, or religious, ceremonially consecrated. That's what holy is. And it's primarily meaning religiously consecrated, set apart. And whenever you talk about holy, it's always talking about something that's intrinsically religious, or if you don't like that word, spiritual. Um, holy land, holy Bible, holy Jerusalem, um, holy temple, um, and here holy brethren. And again, in that Peter passage, uh, God says, uh, be ye holy as I am holy. In other words, I have got, God says, I, I'm, I exist for an intrinsically spiritual purpose. I'm set apart. I'm unique. I'm different. I'm morally pure. And everything that goes with it, we should be the same thing. And so our position is um, we're holy brethren. Um, and... That, that is um, amazing in and of itself. It's, we're set apart for God. Uh, we belong to him. And our entire existence is for spiritual purposes. Once we become a child of God, our whole life changes. And our whole purpose of life changes as well. And you should get that down. No longer are you uh, to live for self, to live for your job, to live for your family, to live for whatever the case might be. Your whole purpose in life is to live for him, live for Jesus. And so whatever you do, that should be in the forefront uh, of your mind. And, and so we are holy brethren. We're set apart for God. And then uh, the next phrase, if you'll turn the um, position over, is our, is our focus. Uh, we are partakers of the heavenly calling. The holiness leads into what the next phrase is. We're set apart. And why are we set apart by God? For the heavenly calling that God has given to us. Uh, once again, once we are saved, we have a different focus in life. We should. Uh, we do, whether we recognize it as clear as we should, whether we apply it uh, as, um, not, I want to say conscientiously, but that's not what I'm thinking, as, as um, consistently, let me, that's probably the better word, whether we apply it, uh, our calling, as consistently as we should or not in our life, uh, our focus in life is completely changed once we're a child of God. Um, and everything else should become secondary in our life. And everything else should be then used to further the calling that we have in the Lord. Uh, we are told, for example, in Colossians 1, 12, and 13, that we're now children of the kingdom. Giving thanks unto the Father, which had made us, made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in life and light who had delivered us from the power of darkness 
and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. So once we're saved, we now become partakers of the heavenly calling. And what does that mean? We are, we are now in God's kingdom. We are in the kingdom of his dear son. We have been delivered from the darkness, from the kingdom of Satan, from the kingdom of death, if you will, and we are now placed into God's kingdom, into the kingdom of his son. Now, when you think of a kingdom, a couple of things at least should come to mind. A kingdom has what? A king, exactly. And a king has subjects. It has a kingdom, but a king has subjects. Who is the king? Jesus. Who are the subjects? We are. All the believers. And subjects are called upon to obey the king. We're in God's kingdom now. We no longer are in, you know, the Bible says we're sojourners. We're passing through. This is not our home. We belong to God's kingdom. We're no longer in the kingdom of darkness. We're in the kingdom of light. So our, our entire focus in life then should be on furthering God's kingdom. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when it says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new cre creation. Uh, old things pass away, all things become new. Then it goes on and it says, and he has made us his, what? We've talked about this. Ambassadors. An ambassador is one who is appointed by the king, or in the vernacular of our world today, a president, certainly in our country, to go to a foreign land and represent the king's needs, desires, wants in a foreign land. And everything that the ambassador does in that foreign land should be for the benefit of the king that he serves. We are ambassadors in Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So everything, everything that we should do should be to benefit his kingdom. Uh, that's why, you know, we've talked about this before. That's why I have a major problem with people who have been called to be, um, um, I wasn't going to use that term, but yes, pastors and, and servants in God's kingdom on earth, but, but even more leaders in God's kingdom on earth, like pastors and such, to leave that high calling and go into politics. What a letdown. What a downer. You could become president of the United States of America. And if you have left your church of 100, you have stepped down in position. And I really mean that in the light of eternity. Now, the flesh gets in the way and, you know, and the lust of the eyes and the, you know, all of that gets in the way. And, but, and I have no problem with a Christian not a, not a pastor, not one called into full-time ministry. But I have no problem with, with a, you know, we use the term lay person, serving in a political system with, with one major caveat. But you don't go into that system to try to change the system. So who does the system belong to? Satan, you're not going to change it. It's his so you don't go in to change it. No, you've got to, you know, in, in any endeavor that any of God's people serve in or work in, whether it be as a school teacher, a librarian, uh, a garbage collector, an eye doctor, uh, you name it, um, we should do it to the best of our ability, honestly and ethically and, and, and so on. Um, and so when you go in, you vote based on your understanding of what would honor God the most, you're, you're anti-abortion, you're anti-euthanasia, you're anti-homosexual um, marriage, and, and, and that type of thing. But you, you don't go in trying to change the system. You go in representing your king. And in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, as ambassadors, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, Christ is in us wanting to reconcile people to him. See, the Lord wants more people in his kingdom. And who is he called to, to, to bring that to pass? Believers. 
So if you go into a political position as a layperson, whether it be a senator in a state or a senator in the Congress or, or, or whatever the case might be, you're going there to represent the Lord. And that's the kingdom ultimately you should advance. And if you do, ultimately as Satan's kingdom progresses in any given world kingdom, what's going to happen to those who put the Lord's priorities first? He's going to be booted out. He's not going to be voted in. Uh, and, and so, anyway, a pastor, a leader that God has called in his kingdom should not lower himself to run for a political office. So, because um, we've, been, we've been put into God. That alone, the focus of our life, uh, the calling that God has for us. Secondly, we have all kinds of spiritual blessings. Here's Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. We've been blessed with all kinds of spiritual blessings. Um, so our focus should be on what God has done for us in Christ. Uh, here's in, in Ephesians chapter 2. We are seated in heavenly places. He has raised up to get us, uh, us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Positionally, we're seated in heaven. Practically, we're right now in Andrew. Yeah, what a letdown. Um, but one day, the position and the practical will match, will meet. You know, when we will be seated in the heavenlies with the Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. You know, it can't come soon enough for me. But one day, it will match. Now, positionally, we're seated in the heavens, spiritually speaking. Uh, but practically, we're still earthbound with all the foibles that we have, um, be it the flu or be it whatever it might be, uh, one day that will be changed. Um, we will be in the, you know. <coughs> Here's another argument for eternal security. If positionally now we are seated in the heavens with Christ Jesus, how can we ever be removed from that? Who's going to remove us? Not God. He says he's not going to do it. We have our citizenship in heaven. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. For our conversation, or literally our, our lifestyle, the old King James conversation means your lifestyle. Your lifestyle is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Live as a citizen of heaven. Don't live as a citizen of earth. You know, I think it's sometimes it's, there's a lot of people who talk about being citizens of heaven, but they live like citizens of the earth. Um, and it puts, in my mind anyway, an extremely large question mark over them if they truly are citizens of heaven. You know, Exhibit A is our president, but that's a whole other story. Um, we're citizens of heaven. So our lifestyle is in heaven, we should live like it. And, and the final thing I put down, we are to focus on things above. Colossians 3.2, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Where are you going to spend most of your existence? Most of your, most, uh, and, uh, most of your eternity. And, and when, when did, you know, your eternity really started when you were born? Or when you were conceived, actually. Uh, because that, that, conception that that child is a child. <laughs> it, it's not a fetus. Um, it's not two cells running around wherever they're running around or whatever, um, or more cells, whatever the case might be. Um, it's a child. Um, and so once a person, a child, is conceived, they're eternal. Now some live eternally in hell. And the others live eternally with the Lord because they've accepted him. But we're all eternal. Um, but we don't realize our eternality uh, until we get saved. And then we are citizens of heaven. And so we're to set our affection on things above, not on things on the earth. And prior to our salvation, 
where's the focus of, you know, if you were saved at five, okay, I understand. Uh, but if you were saved at 25 or 30 or 40 or 50, you know, you can relate to this a lot easier than a five-year-old who, who accepted the Lord. Has Lauren accepted the Lord? Put her on the spot in all front of all these people. Sorry about that, Lauren. Uh, but Lauren was how old when you accepted Jesus? Four. She didn't put a lot of affection on things of the world at four. Maybe she did. You know, dolls and video games and whatever. But the older you get, right, old people? This is <laughs> you didn't have to so quickly answer to that. Um, you can relate to that a lot better, you know, and all this affection on things that, that don't mean anything in the long run. So we're commanded to set our affection on things. So once we get saved, our focus should change. And we need to internalize that, that our purpose in life is completely altered, completely changed, and should be focused on our heavenly calling, which is to serve the king. And then our thoughts our thoughts should be to consider the apostle and high priest, Christ Jesus. All of our thoughts should be focused around him. Now, that doesn't mean when you're trying to, when, 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 when Alan, I'll use him as an example, is looking at a patient and trying to figure out um, how can he make him see better or help him not make him, but help him see better, uh, that, you know, well, he's not thinking of Jesus right there. But the, the thought of it, what Alan does, is for the glory of the Lord. What you do as a teacher, whatever the profession you're in, uh, you're ultimately doing it for Jesus. So whatever you do, you should consider Jesus. Um, I'll use our president as an example. Some people think he's saved. He says he's a Christian. A lot of the stuff he does, I guarantee you, he doesn't consider Jesus. You know, it's not in his thoughts. If it was, he wouldn't do half of what he does with his, what's he do, the twittering, the tweeting? I don't do that stuff. Um, I do enough stuff I got to worry about without tweeting. He wouldn't do half of what he did, does if he really focused his thoughts on the Lord. Because some of it is just so crude, so ungodly, so bad. Um, so our thoughts should continuously be focused on the Lord. How would he like want us to live? How would he like want us to talk? How would he want us to respond? How would he want us to whatever it might be? And consider, the, the, the Greek word is to observe fully. Um, even Paul said, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. So you can follow me, but only follow me as I follow Christ. So who is the one to follow? Christ. Apostle itself means sent, 1 John 4.14. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of all the world. So Jesus, consider the apostle and the high priest, Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus. He is the sent one. Yes. Is it a Greek or a Hebrew term? Um, here it's in the Greek. Um, but was it, um, it certainly was around in the first century. I mean, they had apostles. They called them apostles. My guess is it came out of the Roman world or the, 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 the Gentile world, not the Jewish world. But literally means sent one, so. Yeah, but there, yes, but, yeah, but there's, some people say there's apostles with a capital A, and there's apostles with a small a, and then there are other apostles. With a capital A, you had to see Jesus. Uh, when, the, when Mattathias was not 
you know, no longer an apostle. They were, they were, they were trying to figure out who to get to. Well, he wasn't. They tried to get someone to place Judas, and they came up with Mattathias in um, was it, um, Acts chapter 1. But ultimately, obviously, he, we don't know a lot about what happened, but he, wasn't, he didn't continue on. And so then they, had to, they got someone else who ultimately became, then, if you will, the 12th apostle, Paul. But you had to be an eyewitness of Jesus, uh, which he was on the road to Emmaus. Uh, and it's very possible also, we don't know, when Jesus lived on earth also. Um, but, but, but I think you know, apostle can mean, in, in the Greek world, it's just a sent one. We think, when we think of it in the biblical world, we think of it, you had God appointed them, you had to see Jesus, and so on. But there are apostles with a small a too. It just means sent one. Because here we have that Jesus is the apostle, meaning God sent him, which is what 1 John 4.14 says, and we have seen in due testimony that the Father sent the Son, um, and that's actually sent there's uh, apostatello. It's, it's the word apostle that we have. He, he sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So um, Jesus is the sent one. The, holy, the high priest speaks of his mediatorial function. So consider Jesus was sent by God, and he is the mediator for us. He is our high priest. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God, one mediator between God and man, man, the man Christ Jesus. Um, so and we're to focus on that. We're to consider that, that Jesus was sent specifically for me. And you, and you, and you, and everybody who's put their trust in him. He is also our mediator. There is no other mediator. I'm not a mediator for you. Certainly, the priesthood of the Catholic Church is a false priesthood. They are not priests, biblical priests. There's only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That alone should destroy the, 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 Episcopal, the Episcopal priesthood, the Catholic priesthood, every other priesthood out there. We, we don't need another Priest, we have Jesus, who is our high priest. So consider that. Why, why go through a man when you go through the Lord? You know, so, uh, Bob, you look like you want to say something. Well, you're talking about Mattathias. Yeah, it's possible. So, yeah. Yeah. So. so and then, uh, so Christ Jesus, and I mentioned this earlier under our thoughts, is the first time in this letter the office of Messiah and the person of Jesus are tied together. Previously, the Messiah's office, 1, 1 through 3, were mentioned as being present in the Son, but now the Son, Jesus, and the office of Messiah, Christ, are brought together. It's, it, and so... Christ is not Jesus' last name, although here in, in at least the KJV, they have Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus. But um, normally you talk of Jesus Christ, and uh, I, it, it, Jesus is the Christ. There's no question about that. Jesus is the Messiah. But thou shalt, the, the prophecy of Matthew 1, thou shalt call his name Jesus. Lots of people in the world think his last name is Christ. It's not. That's the office. It's a title or an office. The anointed one was an office in, in the old, uh, you know, President Donald Trump. President is not his first name. It's the office he holds. It's also a title. Um, he's the president, but it's in the, he's in the office of president. Um, so you could, in a sense, look at it that way. So anyway, our thoughts always should be focused on Jesus. In other words, whatever we do, whatever we say, you know, it should always be in mind, what does our king think? What does our king want? That type of thing. And then the final thing that we should internalize, um, our profession. 
uh, and it goes by, you know, consider the apostle and the high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. Now, profession, it's used as a verb, it's used as a noun. Uh, it's used as a noun six times in the New Testament. This is one of them. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9.13, you can read it all later. I put a couple of the verses down here. Um, Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and has professed a good profession. Now, professed would be the verb. Here's the noun, though, in the, in the, in the bold. You have prof professed a good profession before many witnesses. And then at the end of this, in verse 13, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good con confession or profession is the same thing. Hebrews 4.14, later on in Hebrews, seeing then that we have such a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, uh, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. That's a noun. It's used as a verb. More often, actually, in 21 verses, it's used as a verb. Uh, Romans 10, 9, and 10, that if thou shalt confess, that's a verb, you've got to confess Jesus, profess Jesus. Uh, you've got to believe in the heart, that's also part of it too. That's some of the problems with these Hebrew followers. They're just confessing him, but not with their heart. So they don't possess him. But this is the verb, uh, verse uh, 10, for the heart man believes unto righteousness with the mouth confession, profess, say, accept, confess him uh, as your Savior, as your Lord, that type of thing. So here, our profession here is a noun. And our profession is Christ Jesus. So, so you know, when you put this whole thing together, if you want to go back to the other side of the page, wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. We have professed him. Um, we are to consider him. He is our profession. We made a profession to get saved, but we are to continue that profession while we are saved. In other words, we are always called to confess him as our Savior, our Messiah, our Lord, our king, have whatever type of um, terminology that you want to use. So we, he is our profession. And so he should always be our profession. Um, if, if, we are, if you are ever in, 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 in a situation, say, with um, um, Islamic believers, not radicals. I told you about what I believe about Islamic radicals. To me, Islamic radicals who are, are those Muslims who don't believe in jihad, <laughs> so, who want to moderate their religion. That's an Islamic radical. A Muslim who believes in jihad and wants to conquer the world and subjugate all the other peoples of the world to Allah and uh, the messenger of Allah, Muhammad, that's not a radical. That's, that's a Muslim living out his faith. The rad now, the world has it upside down. They have it backwards. You know, and the radical are those that are following the Quran and the Hadith and the teaching and, and so on. They're not radicals. They're committed Muslims. It's, you know, when the, when the world calls you a radical Christian, you know why you're radical? Because you believe the book and you're following what Jesus said. That's all a, a, a radical Muslim. They're not radical. They're following Islam. So if you're ever caught in the place with a convinced Muslim who practices his religion, and a group of them or whatever, and they got this long four-foot sword, and then they're going to, that's right, they're going to cut your head off. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate that. And they're going to say, all you have to do to be spared this is deny your Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And just, just say the words that uh, 
Muhammad is our prophet and uh, Allah is our God and we won't cut your head off. What about your profession? Are you going to deny it? Is, is it worth keeping your head? What would you do? You know, I, you know it's a good time uh, to purpose in your heart that if you are ever put into that type of situation, that you'll decide, I will never deny my Lord. He is my profession. When I professed him initially, I was saved. He's still my Savior, and he's my Lord, and I will never deny him. Remember the guy who denied him three times? You know, he felt terrible. Terrible. So consider your profession. Because sometime in our life, we may be put into a position. You know, I, 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 I think they made a movie of, of this gal. I, you know, the Columbine years ago in the high school, and um, the young gal and, and, and the killer or killers, I forget what it was, they went through and asking people if, if you're a Christian or not, and if they said, yes, I'm a Christian, he, he killed them in Columbine in, in Colorado. And came to this one young girl, I mean, she's a 16, 17-year-old girl. They made a movie, you know, I don't remember her name. I remember the story. And, and he asked her, are you a Christian? Now, she could have said no. And she'd be without anything else happening between then and now. She would be alive today. Could have been a mom and had children. And, 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 but, but she did the right thing. She is alive today. Thank you, April. Yes. And uh, she's got a lot of children, too, by the way, spiritual children, in the sense that many have come to the Lord as a result of her testimony and what has happened after that and her father's. But she, but she said, I'm a Christian, and he killed her, shot her. What would you do? I hope you would do the exact same thing that she did. Oh, my. Okay. It's almost 8.30. We're through with verse 1. Um, <laughs> bad influence in my life, I'll tell you. So, um, See, I started with John MacArthur, and then I went to Stephen Davey. Okay. Yes. Yeah, well, Muslim, Muslims are a whole different religion than, than Christianity. Um, in the Arab world, it's okay to lie if it furthers your interest. Um, and not that all Muslims are Arabs, they're not. Um, but in the Arab world, and many of them are Muslims, it's actually honorable at times to lie because the end justifies the means. Um, and so to them, it's not, it's not a falsehood, it's, it's honorable, you know. And so their, 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 their morality base is skewed off, that type of thing. So anyway, we will stop here. Think about these four things. Um, you know, you know, what our, our, we, we need to focus more on our position, uh, our focus, our thoughts, and our profession. Because really, that, that's our whole life. You know, that's our whole life when you think about it. That's who we are. Uh, what we should do and uh, who we follow, that type of thing. So, Lord willing, we will finish the next five verses next week. Um, I knew there was a lot of stuff here. Um, so, we will pick it up. Now, any other thoughts before we close? Cheryl spent all last night baking. Uh, and uh, this is when the people who are watching online start drooling. Um, uh, you know, and, and that may not be the correct term, but but I have we have received emails that everything's great until you tell us about the desserts, and we're not there. Um, and uh, she's she's made. Sure, what did you make? Okay, she died and went to heaven. Obviously, okay. <laughs> so, what did you make for dessert? Okay, chocolate chip blondies. 
and lemon bars. So you get your choice, one of each or whatever the case might be. And so we will close with a word of prayer, and then um, they're, they're usually served, I think. So enjoy them. I didn't taste any of them. I really didn't. She doesn't let me taste them. But anyway, uh, enjoy the dessert, and uh, feast. we fe feasted on the Word of God. But uh, what God has done for us is amazing. Let's give Him thanks. Thank you, Father, for your blessing. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.